Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Angela Kane talks about the Paul Taylor Dance Studio in Manhattan's Lower East Side. This long itinerant but always vibrant cultural institution helped make New York a global capital for dance in the mid-20th century, when the likes of Martha Graham, Alvin Ailey, and George Balanchine walked the city streets. Its eponymous founder choreographed 144 works, including his first, Oriel, a pathbreaking avant-garde spin on John Cage's famous piece on silence. Taylor proved to be a gifted, diverse, and prolific creator, quickly winning recognition in the field, even as he juggled several part-time gigs during those early years in classic New York City fashion, dressing windows for Tiffany's, dancing for the ballet, and sleeping in a roach-infested Hell's Kitchen space that served as his first studio. Kane, a professor of dance at the University of Michigan, has worked as a company's historian since 2003, and is preparing the first critical study of Taylor, who died in September 2018. For more podcasts like this, and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. The Paul Taylor Dance Company has been a vibrant cultural institution in New York City for more than 60 years. Although its home base and performance venues have changed over time, including many areas of Manhattan, both uptown and downtown, you'll find it today in the Lower East Side at 551 Grand Street. Go take a class there or check out the company's website. The Taylor Studio is a welcoming place. The expansive second floor houses the many offices that are essential infrastructure for a major modern dance company. Artistic director, executive director, rehearsal director, finance, marketing, development and public relations, plus an archive and production and wardrobe shops. Amazingly, all the dancing occurs in just two studios. Here, both the main company and a second smaller troupe, Taylor Two, create and rehearse alongside daily professional level and community classes offered by the Taylor School. And all just a block away from the Henry Street Playhouse, where founder Paul Taylor presented his first professional work, Jack and the Beanstalk, in May 1954. He went on to choreograph more than 140 dances until his passing in August 2018, aged 88. I first saw the Paul Taylor Dance Company live in Paris in 1987. I saw the same triple bill, Cloven Kingdom, Last Look and Musical Offering four times and I was hooked. This epiphany predated my early career as a dance writer in London. My decision to pursue doctoral research on Taylor's choreography and ultimately my career in academia. It's important to remind today's audiences that in the pre-DVD and YouTube era, a trip across the English Channel was the only way I could experience Taylor choreography by his own dancers, especially as it had been over 10 years since the company had last performed in England. Taylor and his dancers finally returned to London in 1989 and then again in 1991. Sadler's Wells Theatre was my fieldwork site for those two foundational seasons and also for my first conversations with Paul. More than two decades since he'd retired from performing, his tall, limber physique was still a sight to behold. What struck me most, though, was his slow, soft voice and southern manners starkly dichotomous to his lofty presence. But I came to realise that Taylor was a master of contradictions, 
on stage and off. In my obituary in the Guardian newspaper last summer, I described him as both a paradox and a creative polymath, a phenomenal dancer and choreographer, painter and illustrator, and a published writer. Yet he resisted the normal trappings of fame. Taylor was a very private man whose public personas were reserved solely for the stage. This podcast attempts to capture how such a solitary figure sustained a full-time dance company and studio in New York City for more than six decades, how he shaped and showcased successive generations of dancers through his multifaceted choreography, and how he came up with an ingenious plan for his company and vast repertory of dances to continue after his passing. Insights to Taylor's early life and career and the development of his company can be found in his autobiography, Private Domain, published in 1987. His childhood years were spent in Virginia and Washington, D.C., where his divorced mother managed the Brighton Hotel restaurant. They were solitary years during which Taylor occupied himself most of the time, often striking up two-way conversations with imaginary friends. Taylor was a varsity athlete in high school, and he went on to study painting as an undergraduate at Syracuse University, the latter financed in large part by a swim team scholarship. After his junior year, he transferred to New York City's Juilliard School in 1952 to immerse himself in modern dance. At that time, the school was at West 122nd Street, a block from Riverside Church, where the Manhattan School of Music now stands. He left after only a year and soon joined Merce Cunningham's first company. Jack and the Beanstalk was created the following year with designs by Robert Rauschenberg. The pair worked together on several dances until 1960, including Three Epitaphs, 1956, the oldest surviving work in Taylor's repertory, and Seven New Dances, 1957. Taylor presented Seven New Dances at the 92nd Street Y and it proved to be a career-defining moment for him. The entire concert comprised seven works, but it was just one dance duet which marked him historically. Wearing formal business attire, suit, shirt, tie, he and his female partner, Toby Glantonick, remained motionless for four minutes and 33 seconds. This was Taylor's choreographic version of the composer John Cage's famous silent score of the same title. Many audience members walked out before the duet ended, but a notorious blank column of space by critic Louis Horst in Dance Observer brought Taylor's work to the attention of New York City's many dance aficionados. By the early 1960s, he was getting commissions to choreograph for other companies, including the Netherlands Ballet and for his own group of dancers at prestigious summer festivals in Europe and at the annual American Dance Festival. He established his full-time year-round touring company in 1962, the same year that he created the highly successful Oriel, which has remained in the company's repertory to this day. Even Louis Horst acknowledged Oriel as a professional high point, and I quote, It suffices to say now that Oriel proved a surprising adventure into an unexpected field for Mr. Taylor. Its lyric, graceful and utterly cheerful phrases were most satisfying. It was almost a Lacey Feeds 1962. And as dance critic Deborah Jarrett explained in The Village Voice, a piece like Oriel may be formal, serene, musical, like the best sort of ballet. 
but it's couched in Taylor's highly idiosyncratic style, with parallel feet, loosely swinging arms, jutting hips, scrunchings in of the whole torso. The weight of the dancer is also peculiar to him. It's spongy yet buoyant, the gestures like small banners or huge sails fluttering or billowing in response to a gentle wind. Taylor followed the success of Oriel, choreographed to music by J.S. Bach with a very different dance, Peace Period, in late 1962, and yet another, Scudorama, which premiered at the 1963 American Dance Festival. Peace Period was an amusing pastiche on pre-20th century characters and customs, to short excerpts of music by Beethoven, Haydn, Scarlatti, Telemann and Vivaldi. In contrast, Scudorama had a commission score by Clarence Jackson, and it was the antithesis of Oriel. In private domain, Taylor writes, The new dance is to be as dark as Oriel is sunny, fragmented rather than integrated, and it featured images of death, futility and panic. In 1965, Taylor created his first Americana work from Sea to Shining Sea, originally set to music by Charles Ives, and in 1966, the ambitious hour-long orbs to Beethoven's late quartets. This early period, prolific and diverse, foreshadowed in many ways Taylor's later career. It was a heady time in the dance world, particularly in New York City. Through the mid-20th century, Manhattan had emerged as the dance capital of the United States. Many major companies established themselves here, capitalizing on the abundance of rehearsal and performing spaces, and in a new political climate which advocated for public funding for the arts. Several companies based in the Big Apple, including Alvin Ailey, Martha Graham, New York City Ballet and Paul Taylor were sponsored on overseas tours by the US State Department and from 1965 were some of the first to be supported by the newly formed National Endowment for the Arts. Such funding was crucial to the development of Taylor's company and repertory and international acclaim led to increased recognition at home. The facilities at Grand Street today are a far cry from the crumbling, cockroach-ridden building in Hell's Kitchen that functioned as Taylor's first studio, and his home. In those early days, most of his dancers had day jobs and rehearsed only after work. Through the 1950s, Taylor himself juggled several jobs, including performing in Broadway musicals as a member of the Merce Cunningham Dance Company 1953 to 1954, the Martha Graham Dance Company 1955 to 1962, and as a guest artist with New York City Ballet 1959 to 1961. In between, he worked as a window dresser at Tiffany's and somehow found time for his own work. Taylor lived his entire adult life in New York City, for many years in a brownstone on Van Damme Street in the West Village walking distance from the company's studio, which at that time was at 552 Broadway, in a pre-gentrified Soho, where Banana Republic now trades. Taylor also had a second home at Matatuck, on the North Fork of Long Island, which, after he retired from performing in 1974, became both his sanctuary and creative incubator. There he listened to music, read a wide range of novels and non-fiction, watched TV, and engaged in his favourite pastime, puzzling. Don't think jigsaws exactly, 
as Taylor reflected in one of his last letters to me, I often sit in a square chair near the fireplace in a rectangular room of my country hideaway. Through a glass door, I'm able to see that there's a perfectly straight line where the Long Island Sound meets the Connecticut shore. Close in front of me are various objects that aren't straight or square, that are instead violently and strangely curved. Each of them, studied one by one, looks as if it couldn't have any possible function in a sane world. These objects seem unlikely, counterproductive, and entirely unrelated to each other. In actual fact, of course, they are nothing of the sort. Appraised correctly, each piece has its particular place in a particular universe. They not only make sense, they make a picture, just like Taylor's dances. Taylor's talent for puzzling, his painterly eye, and his ability to draw readers in with literally slates, such as vivid description, ambiguity, intrigue, and humor, give us a window into his choreography with its rich sources of creativity and multiple stage worlds. For those unfamiliar with his work, there is a vast universe to explore. The Sublime Oriel, Ayres 1978, Arden Court 1981, and Esplanade 1975. The Spine-Chilling Scudorama, Speaking in Tongues 1988, and Banquet of Vultures 2005 the chuckle-inducing peace period, and Troilus and Cressida reduced, 2006. The sultry Piazzolla Caldera and the elegiac Eventide, both 1997. The nostalgic Company B, 1991, and Black Tuesday, 2001. And the haltingly beautiful Sunset, 1983, and beloved Renegade, 2008. Since my first encounter with Taylor's company in Paris and London in the late 1980s, I've seen all of these dances in performance many times. Two trips to New York in 1991 and 1992 launched the official start of my research. They were long days fueled with the ambitions and excitement of discovery at the dance collection of the New York Public Library and from 1993 onwards at the company's Broadway studio. There was no Taylor archive as such in those days, so I spent my first summer there organising stacks of Taylor scrapbooks and ephemera. But the best thing about that summer was that I got to sit in on my first Taylor rehearsal. It was a special day. The company was preparing for an upcoming season at City Centre, and two August alums from the early days, Elizabeth Walton and Dan Wagner, were there sitting alongside Taylor and longtime rehearsal director Betty DeYoung. After a run of Oriel, all four took to the floor offering coaching tips and corrections. The respect and awe in the room were palpable, and what I've come to learn since then is how important Taylor alumni are to the organisation as a whole. Not just when they turn up at a rehearsal or a performance to support the current generation of dancers, but in preserving his legacy and passing it on through body memories honed over many years of working for Paul. What's remarkable about Taylor's dancers across the generations is how long they stay. Many joining the company straight out of college and staying through to the end of their performing career. Betty DeYoung auditioned for the company in 1962 and became a long-time Taylor muse. She performed into her early 50s and remains today as the company's rehearsal director. 
thus serving a key role in terms of both embodied and institutional history. That's a very, very long time in the dance world. While a musician can replace a worn-out clarinet or violin, a dancer's instrument is the body, and the daily round of rehearsals, performances and touring eventually take their toll. The Paul Taylor Dance Company has performed in all 50 states and across the globe, but there's always something heightened and special about a dance company's home season. I was reminded of this in a major way in 2017. The publicity campaign for Taylor's upcoming season at Lincoln Center that year was titled, This is Why We Live Here, with this heavily underlined. The dancers were photographed in typical Taylor poses in several iconic locations. Michael Trusnovic dancing along the Brooklyn Bridge. Parissa Cobde leaping on attitude over the Bethesda Fountain in Central Park. Erin Buggy arching backwards on Lair by Cat's Delicatessen. Laura Halzak soaring in a stag jeté almost as high as the Chrysler Building. Michael Apuzo in a similar leap along the inlit Broadway at night. Jamie Ray Walker on Sean Mahoney's shoulders in front of the Flatiron Building and Michael Novak illuminated by the clock tower of the Met Life Building. It was somewhat auspicious yet fitting that Novak was captured representing Taylor's company with an insurance building as his backdrop. In 2014, the company had announced a new initiative, Paul Taylor American Modern Dance, PTAMD, as a way of securing a stable long-term future. Fast forward to May 2018, when Taylor chose Novak as his successor. Then, after Paul's passing three months later, Novak became the company's artistic director. A 2014 press notice for the establishment of PTAMD explained the new initiative, and I quote, Paul Taylor is shaking up his company as it celebrates its 60th anniversary. After six decades, Mr. Taylor said that he wanted to broaden its mission to include past masterworks of modern dance and works by contemporary choreographers, in addition to his oeuvre and the dances he plans to continue to create. With Paul's passing last August, there will be no new Taylor dances, but the establishment of PTAMD has enabled the creation of new work by several American choreographers, Brian Arias, Doug Elkins, Larry Kegwin, Doug Verone, Shen Wei, and Lila York. Also, as part of the company's New York season since 2014, the repertory has included modern dance masterworks by Tricia Brown, Merce Cunningham, Isadora Duncan, Martha Graham, Doris Humphrey, and Donald McHale. Thus, Taylor's Grand Street Studio has been reimagined as a center for modern dance more broadly. And as artistic director, Novak's mission now is to uphold Taylor's vision and legacy. In a brochure introducing himself to donors late last year, Novak wrote, The death of Paul Taylor is a profound moment in our history, where one era shifts into another, where what's next becomes what's now. It's an opportunity for grieving, yes, but also for celebration, for sharing memories and for reminding ourselves of the incredible breadth of the Taylor canon. Right now on Grand Street, the Paul Taylor Dance Company slash PTAMD is busy preparing for its 2019 season at the David H. Koch Theatre at Lincoln Centre. 
The season opens with a free memorial performance on Tuesday, October 29th, with another free performance on Tuesday, November 5th. 23 dancers spanning six decades, from Taylor's solo in Balanchine's Episodes 1959, reconstructed on Michael Trusnovic, to Paul's last new work, Concertiana 2018, and commissions by three cutting-edge choreographers, Kyle Abraham, Margie Gillis and Pam Tanowitz. Thank you, Paul, for envisaging such an exciting future for your company and studio. And, as we say in the dance world, mared to Michael Novak as he takes over the artistic torch. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcasts at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. 